Migrants no longer have to wait in Mexico for a U.S. court hearing to request asylum. That's been the case since 2019, when the Trump administration introduced Migrant Protection Protocols, or MPP. The Biden administration has been trying to end the so-called Remain in Mexico policy for over a year. The Department of Homeland Security says, quote, MPP has endemic flaws, imposes unjustifiable human costs, and pulls resources and personnel away from other priority efforts to secure our border, end quote. In June, the Supreme Court ruled the administration could finally end it, but the process is projected to take months, and some migrants will still have to wait in Mexico for their court hearings before they can enter the U.S. So what will the next steps look like, and what kind of effect has Remain in Mexico had on our immigration policy? We'll answer those questions and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to be part of future conversations. Download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. We're discussing immigration and the end of the Remain in Mexico policy. Joining us is Nicholas Palazzo. He's a senior attorney and border fellow with the Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, and he's been representing migrants in court as they wait for hearings in Mexico. Nicholas, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Also with us is Kate Morrissey. She's been in the immigration courts recently. She's an immigration reporter for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Kate, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. We reached out to the Department of Homeland Security to have someone come on, but didn't hear back before airtime, but the offer still stands. Nicholas, let's start from the beginning. How did Remain in Mexico change the way migrants request asylum? Um, In early 2019, the Trump administration implemented the policy, which, you know, was a huge game changer on the southern border. Traditionally, up until then, asylum seekers coming into the country were either released into the U.S. to proceed with their court proceedings, or they were held in an ICE detention facility physically in the United States. In early 2019, the migrant protection protocols effectively flipped the the script on this. And what it allowed, it allowed the government to, to send migrants back to Mexico to wait for their court proceedings rather than having them in the U.S. physically. Last November, Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas wrote in a memo, quote, MPP not only undercuts the administration's ability to implement critically needed and foundational changes to the immigration system, it fails to provide the fair process and humanitarian protections that individuals deserve under the law, end quote. Nicholas, asking for asylum is a legal right in the U.S. Was that right violated or limited by this policy? Well, I think it depends on who you ask. Certainly amongst the border community, um, we strongly believe that, yes, asylum is a right. It's an international human right, and it's a right that's codified under U.S. law. Our concern was that this policy violated that right, essentially, because it it, it's, it deprived individuals from due process. It, depri- it deprived them from access to counsel. It deprived them from the ability to seek asylum from a situation or from a, from a context of safety and, and community. Kate, what are people arguing on the other side of that equation about failure to provide due process to people who are seeking asylum? Um, so there is a, I would say, longstanding tradition in um, sort of many, many areas of our country of, of thinking that the best way to handle migration, the best way to handle people showing up at our border is through deterrence, is through 
taking actions to try to dissuade people from coming here. And so if you make it more difficult or more painful or more deadly to come here, then maybe they will choose not to. And so this program is is very much in line with that sort of tradition of, of thinking that, um, you know, spans at different times, uh, both of our political parties that, that have implemented different policies to try to achieve that. The Remain in Mexico is, is more of a, an extreme example, I would say, in, in pushing for that deterrence in saying, you know, you can't be on U.S. soil while you're waiting for your case. Um, and we're going we're gonna to put you in, in a situation where you are um, probably not safe, as thousands of people have been kidnapped or, or otherwise harmed while they're waiting in Mexico, migrants who are waiting in Mexico. Now, Kate, you got to witness some immigration court hearings in San Diego last week. How did those hearings work? So the, the way it works is that when someone has a court hearing, they're uh, brought onto U.S. soil just for the moment of their hearing. And then generally, once the next hearing is scheduled, because it takes many hearings to get through an asylum case, um, they're sent back to wait again in Mexico. But now that the program is ending, um, the Department of Homeland Security has decided to disenroll people from the program as they come for court. So they're still brought onto U.S. soil. They go before the judge and have their hearing. And then after the hearing, they are released to continue their cases in the United States. How have the migrants you've spoken to responded to the end of Remain in Mexico? Well, the ones who have been released into the United States, it's it's life-changing in the most joyful way you can imagine. I watched, you know, a grown man cry openly in immigration court last week when he learned that he would be allowed to go stay with his U.S. citizen brother in Florida. And he just couldn't even find the words to express how happy he was. Um, for the people who are, are still in Mexico, which is most of the people who have been placed into this program under the Biden administration, you know, they're anxious to get to their court hearing. They're anxious to come in. They're hopeful that they too will be released. But there's still this element of, of not knowing exactly what's going to happen to them until that moment when they make it to court and, and if this is still what's happening at that point because, as, as you may know, the, the lawsuit over this policy continues and we don't know exactly how that's going to shake out. So there's still a lot of, of tension and concern and anxiety um, south of the border. And then there are also people who were in the program but were um, managed to get out of it because they were able to explain to an asylum officer that they were in very serious danger in Mexico. And um, recently, a lot of those folks have actually been sent to immigration detention facilities. And so they, too, are frustrated because, you know, if their hearing had been a couple of weeks later, they might have been released to their families instead. Nicholas, first, how many people were, were forced to stay in Mexico during the Trump administration? Do we know? So there's no accurate number, but it was under the, the first iteration of the policy under former President Trump, it was close to 70,000 asylum seekers from a variety of countries, um, a majority Spanish speaking, who, were, who had entered the United States and then were, were, were placed in this program. And what about during the Biden administration? 
Under um, President Biden, it was significantly fewer, around eight or 9,000. And Nicholas, how long have migrants typically been waiting in Mexico for a court hearing? So this has been one of the greatest um, concerns is that you have a situation where um, individuals who, upon their initial enrollment, they're placed in the court into the program. And and like Kate mentioned, it's usually not just one or two court hearings, but several until they have a final opportunity to argue their, their case before a judge. And so we've seen situations of individuals who have effectively been in Mexico for well over a year, still waiting for for their day in court. Nicholas, if I'm looking for asylum, what options are available to me? How does that process work? Unfortunately, because of the climate that we have, there are few and far between. Um, Since the COVID pandemic, all asylum processing at designated ports of entry, whether bridges or places where traditionally asylum seekers could show up and ask a a Customs and Border Patrol agent for asylum, all that has been closed off. Um, Asylum seekers who do try to present themselves are effectively turned away and told that they must wait in Mexico. So the only real option, unfortunately, is to enter in between ports of entry. And if you're fortunate, um, you'll have the opportunity to remain in the United States, not be sent back to Mexico or not be expelled under the, the administration's Title 42 policy. So in terms of the options available, there, there are few and far between. And briefly, just explain what Title 42 is. So Title 42 is a um, public health policy that was implemented again under former President Trump and that has since continued under President Biden. And it effectively gives full discretion to Border Patrol to expel, immediately expel asylum seekers who enter the country without any semblance of due process. They're not, unlike with Remain in Mexico, they're not given a court date, they're not given legal papers. They're effectively apprehended at the border and then summarily dismissed back to Mexico. So now that Remain in Mexico is being wound down, if asylum seekers no longer have to wait for a court hearing in Mexico, will they have to wait in a detention center in the U.S.? So that decision relies almost entirely within the discretion of ICE. Um, We've received commitments from DHS that, you know, absent a criminal record or prior order of removal, for the most part, the majority of individuals, fortunately, who will be disenrolled from MPP at their court hearings should be um, released into the United States and not held in ICE custody. And so then what processes are in place to ensure they, they show up in court? So there, there are a variety of processes. Um, most commonly is what called al- alternatives to detention. So they'll usually put an ankle bracelet um, on someone um, to essentially verify their, their whereabouts. They're, they're also handing out cell phones with GPS tracking. And almost any individual asylum seeker who's released into the U.S. is also required to report to ICE very every few couple of months. And so there are a var- variety of systems in place to make sure that people comply with, with their, their um, court responsibilities. Well, let's hear from DHS Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas speaking to Face the Nation. We have said repeatedly and we continue 
to warn people not to take the dangerous journey we saw so tragically in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, one of the possible tragic results of that dangerous journey, and so many people don't even make it that far in the hands of exploitative smugglers. And we continue to enforce immigration law, as is our legal responsibility. Crossing the U.S.-Mexico border illegally is already risky and dangerous. Kate, how did MPP or, or Remain in Mexico add to that danger? Sure. There, I think any time that you increase the, the deterrence mechanisms or make it more difficult for people to get onto U.S. soil and stay on U.S. soil, it sends more people into the hands of smugglers. It, it makes more people feel like they have to sneak into the country Um Previously, you know, when someone was requesting asylum years ago, as soon as they presented themselves to Border Patrol and said, I'm afraid to return to my country, I need protection, there was a a protocol that we would follow to screen them to see if they qualify as refugees, and they would stay on U.S. soil, either in a detention center or release, depending on their case, until that was determined. Um, but once people started to figure out that if they turned themselves into Border Patrol, they would be sent back to Mexico to wait for their court hearings, many people chose to then uh, try to sneak into the country, uh, some successfully and some unsuccessfully. Uh, I remember even back in 2019, I met a man who uh, did successfully Uh, make it into the United States and is now living as an undocumented person here. And I recently spoke to an attorney in the Miami area who um, has encountered many clients in the last couple of months who are in a similar situation. They um, didn't feel safe waiting, so they crossed again and and managed to make it into the United States. But now they're they're undocumented and and their path to um, maybe have protection is much less clear. Well, from February 2019 until February 2021, the pro-immigration organization Human Rights First tracked more than 1,500 reported cases of kidnappings and other attacks on migrants involved in the Remain in Mexico program. Nicholas, very briefly, what have you heard from the people and families you represent about the violence they faced when seeking asylum? I think there is a level of desperation and fear um, that cannot adequately be put into words, frankly. Um, Even last week, we saw an uptick in cartel-based violence in Baja California and Tijuana and in the Juarez region where I work. Um, People are terrified. They do not leave their house. They do not leave the the shelters where they are living. They're afraid to go out and look for medical care, employment opportunities in Mexico while they await their, their hearings. They walk around as if there's a target on their back. Uh, migrants in Mexico are particularly vulnerable to certain types of violence. So they um, walk around and, and live in a, in a state of constant fear. Um, there's a perception amongst kidnappers, extortionists, cartel members that this is a population that has the resources to pay for ransom. Um, they have community and family ties in the U.S., and they may have, you know, the the means to afford an attorney. So, so they're particularly vulnerable. And and sadly, Mexican law enforcement, the police, do little, if anything, to protect this population. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. You're listening to the One A podcast. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter at One A.
Let's get back to our conversation on the end of the Remain in Mexico policy with this message from Gene. He says, I'm a volunteer with Indiana Aid to Immigrants in Detention. I made a weekly video call to a young man who has been detained in a county jail for seven months now. He showed me the scar on his chest from being beaten during a march in his home country. He fears returning to his country for fear of his life. Several lawyers have tried to help, but he still remains detained. We got this question from Leon, who emails, if Mexico would provide safe, humane housing for applicants to remain there while their asylum was pending, perhaps with U.S. financial support, why not let them stay there? Kate, how much safe, humane housing is there in Mexico near the border? Uh, Not much. I mean, so there's a... Tijuana, I think, has a particularly robust network of shelters. Um, Those shelters have been full pretty much since the the pandemic title 42 policy has been expelling folks to to Mexico who are then uh, stuck there with without any access to to try to request asylum um, and there have been a couple of shelters in particular that have have stepped up to house people returned under the remain in Mexico program but even still you know we hear about kidnappings we hear about attempted kidnappings. When I was in court a couple of weeks ago, um, the judge asked the man in front of him if uh, he was afraid to return to Mexico. And he said, yes, there are cartel members waiting outside my shelter to try to find people in this program, in MPP in particular, because they know how vulnerable we are. And that's something you hear across the board. And I think the you know, what happened this weekend in Tijuana with with cartel violence effectively shutting the whole city down for about a day um, shows you, you know, even even with the efforts that Mexico might make to try and make more safe spaces, they don't have everything under control. There are thousands of people who are trying to seek asylum from Mexico, Mexican people who are trying to seek asylum from Mexico because of the cartel issue there and because the Mexican government is not able to protect them. And so I think, you know, it would it would take so many years of work to get the country to a place where it could effectively protect migrants. Now, there's a Remain in Mexico uh, policy, which is winding down, but Mexico has agreed to take in migrants of all nationalities who are expelled from the U.S. under Title 42, that other public health policy. But Kate, will ending Remain in Mexico make a difference as far as the number of migrants in the U.S. if Title 42 remains in place? It depends on the nationality, actually. So Title 42 mostly affects people who are from Mexico, Honduras, Guatemala, and El Salvador. Um, to a lesser extent, uh, some other countries in in the hemisphere. Uh, but Mexico, at this point, has has mostly agreed to take uh, its own citizens as well as those other three nationalities. And so what we've seen is is that has created this real split in in who is able to access the asylum system and who is not. So somebody from Cuba or Venezuela or Nicaragua who comes to the border, is, is either, prior to the end of the Remain in Mexico program, would either be placed in the Remain in Mexico program or would be processed into the United States to seek asylum, either from the detention center or released. And so 
the, 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 for those nationalities, for the people who were being placed in the Remain in Mexico program, which I believe the largest nationality is actually Nicaragua, um, they will now be processed into the United States. We do occasionally see um, the U.S. government trying to expel um, some people from those nationalities to their country. At one point, I believe there was an agreement with Colombia to send Colombians and Venezuelans back to Colombia, but those those numbers are still very small in terms of who's being expelled to those countries. So the majority of those nationalities will be um, processed in. But for Mexicans, Salvadorans, Hondurans, Guatemalans, this change doesn't really do anything for them. We got this question from Nora, who emails, what are the criteria for receiving asylum? What percentage of immigrants actually are granted it in the end? Nicholas, what can you tell us? So, I mean, the criteria is uh, an asylum, an applicant for asylum has to effectively establish that they um, have a well-found fear of returning to their country of origin because of persecution based on certain enumerated grounds, such as religion, race, um, membership in a particular social group or political opinion. Um, It is a relatively high bar to meet. And then in terms of your chances, you know, it's a little bit like playing Russian roulette. It really depends on the court where you find yourself. And so there are some courts um, throughout the country, immigration courts, where the immigration judges will have a higher rate of granting asylum. And then there are um, other courts that are, you know, notoriously called asylum-free zones because immigration judges have a tendency to deny the vast majority, up to 95, 98% of asylum claims. So in terms of your chances, obviously, it, it depends a lot on the immigration court that you find yourself in. It also depends, obviously, on whether or not you're fortunate enough to have legal representation. In the immigration context, unlike the criminal law context in the U.S., There is no right to government counsel. There's no um, public defender, so to speak, in immigration law. So so that's kind of a nuanced uh, question in terms of what your possibilities are of of obtaining relief. I think there are a lot of factors in play. And if someone is denied asylum, what happens for them next? So normally they're given 30 days to appeal their case. Um, if they're released in the country during the pendency of that appeal, which which can take um, up to several years, they're they're allowed to continue to work um, legally in the United States. And there's a the board of immigration appeals which can decide their case. If they don't um, appeal their case, you know, simply put, they're they're usually just deported back to their country. So, Kate, as we said, Title 42 is remaining in effect. But how much will is there within the Biden administration to end that policy? The Biden administration actually tried to end Title 42 back in the spring, um, but there was similarly a lawsuit about uh, their choice to end that policy. And for now, um, a federal judge has ordered them to continue it. There's still an ongoing legal battle about that situation. So we're all kind of waiting to see what happens as that case progresses through the the appeals and, 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 and through the, the rest of the the decision makings from the judge. Uh, But at the moment, it is sort of legally blocked from ending Title 42. Well, are we likely to see more legal battles around remain in Mexico now that the Supreme Court has confirmed the administration's ability to end that policy? Yes, absolutely. We are already seeing um, the states of Texas and Missouri, who originally brought the lawsuit to try to keep the program around, filing um, 
uh, an amended complaint in in court to to restart uh, the conversation with the judge after the the Supreme Court ruled that the Biden administration had the power to end the program because there are still other sort of legal questions about the way that they ended it that the judge will have to decide. Recently, Washington, D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser requested aid from the D.C. National Guard. That came after Texas sent more than 5,100 migrants to Washington. Let's hear from her. We need space uh, and we we need the federal government to be involved. So I've asked um, for the deployment of the Guard as long as we need the Guard to deal with the humanitarian crisis that we expect to escalate. The number of people crossing the border seeking asylum, we expect to only go up. So MPP is ending. That's again, remain in Mexico. But Nicholas, how much bandwidth does our immigration system have to take in more people? So I think um, the Department of Homeland Security has a huge budget. Um, you know, it's, it's my sincere belief that, you know, with the right investments in, in capacity training and in personnel, um, we have the ability to uphold our obligations under U.S. law, which is to recognize the right to seek asylum by increasing processing at the ports of entry. If, if, if we're ultimately concerned about decreasing the amount of human smuggling, you know, decreasing the amount of entries without inspection, then a, a solution to that would be to open opportunities to seek asylum in a lawful, efficient, and safe way. And so it's, it's my belief that, yes, the U.S. government has the capacity in a humane way, of course, to, to, increasing pro, to increase processing and allow people to go to a port of entry request asylum and give them the opportunity to seek asylum in the United States. When you talk about increasing that capacity, practically speaking, what would that look like? I think increasing personnel, increasing processing, physical space at the ports of entry. So, you know, right now, very few individuals are being allowed a very select handful of what are they calling exemptions to Title 42 um, are being allowed through the US at ports of entry, processed into the legal system and given a court date, I think that number can increase significantly given the right investments. Kate, what about the capacity of the immigration court system? How, how much capacity does it have at this point? Well, the immigration court system has been backlogged for years and years. Um, short of some significant policy changes. I don't see that changing anytime soon. But I will also say, um, you know, just looking at the numbers, there were roughly 7,000 or so people enrolled in the Remain in Mexico program. And so when we're talking about, you know, the number of border crossings and the number of people placed in this program, it's not uh, a huge percentage of, of the people who have crossed. Most of them are, are being expelled under Title 42 or um, or processed into the United States. And, and month to month, exactly where that split falls fluctuates a little bit. Um, but the, you know, the Remain in Mexico program, I would also say, actually places a pretty big burden on the immigration court system. Uh, when you have one person a day showing up for a hearing with a judge who would normally have several hearings during that time of people inside the United States and with how difficult it is for people in Mexico to find attorneys to represent them, um, they end up having to set the case to come back and set the case to come back and set the case to come back to give the person a chance to find an attorney. And so it drags out the cases and, and you know, the judge will spend five minutes with the person and say, so have you found an attorney yet? And the person says, no, I'm still looking. And the judge says, okay, come back in a month. 
And you have this whole process happening just for that five-minute conversation to take place. Um, so uh, in terms of how the change will affect the immigration court backlog, I, I you know, if anything, it's, it's going to free up the judges to work on the other cases in, in the backlog. But I, I don't see that backlog changing anytime soon, um, short of, of maybe some different policy decisions. Like when you look at how other countries process um, asylum, sometimes if there's a, a very significant um, set of conditions in a country, um, they will decide to do something more uh, as a group to say like, okay, we know that, for example, anyone who flees the country of Eritrea in, in Eastern Africa, if they're sent back to that country, they're imprisoned and tortured by their government. So Maybe instead of making each individual person spend the time with the judge to prove that, we'll do some sort of group grant so that they're removed from, from the backlog. Um, and we see that happen in other countries, but that's not something our country has ever done. Um, and I don't, I don't see a lot of conversation happening around that, but there are things like that that could be talked about in order to try to, to reduce that backlog. Nicholas, what longer-term effect do you think the Remain in Mexico program will have on immigration policy moving forward? Well, I think um, it will have a harmful legacy, of course, but I think it's going to leave the door open to a future administration um, to re-implement another iteration of this policy. You know, this notion that we can somehow externalize asylum, outsource the problem to, to another country, um, out of mind, out of sight. And so I think the legacy is certainly one of violence, cruelty, lack of due process. And, you know, the Supreme Court decision, I think, needs to be interpreted very narrowly in the sense that it, it only really, it doesn't close off a future administration from trying something similar. That's Nicholas Palazzo. He's a senior attorney and border fellow with the Las Americas Immigrant Advocacy Center, and he represented families enrolled under Remain in Mexico. Also with us, Kate Morrissey, who reports on immigration for the San Diego Union-Tribune. Kate, Nicholas, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Sofia Alvarez-Boyd. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and let's talk more soon. This is 1A 